The World Up Front is an international affairs podcast, interviewing leading minds on topics of global importance, bringing to light the events, ideas, and trends shaping today's world. I'm your host, Alex Betley. It has now been 20 months since Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine, with the Russian government's original intention of seizing Kyiv and decapitating the government there having failed on a massive scale. Since, the Ukrainian people have fought back against Russian aggression valiantly, not just militarily, but also in their resolve to withstand constant bombardments of civilian infrastructure since the war's beginning. The spirit of the Ukraine populace has surprised and inspired many people the world over. I have on the show today one individual who was in Kyiv in the days just before Russia's invasion. What he described to me on his return from the city surprised me, and I think provides great insight into the Ukrainian people. Captain Kevin D. Ryan is an infantry officer in the United States Marines. He has deployed to Spain, East Africa, Europe, Hawaii, and Afghanistan, and perhaps other places, if uh, he cares to uh, uh, let us know about that. Captain Ryan holds an MA in Diplomatic Studies from the University of Oxford, where he earned the Diplomat of the Year Award, and a BA in History from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He is currently completing an MA in Security Studies from Georgetown University. Kevin, thanks for joining the world up front. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. So... Let's go back to just before February 24th, 2022. Um, Russia has been amassing a huge invasion force on Ukraine's border for about six months. They had amassed it before, then left the infrastructure in place, then left and then came back. Um, weeks, The weeks leading up to February 24th, the United States basically said, our intelligence says that Russia plans to invade but hasn't decided when or hasn't given the go-ahead. And actually, the U.S. Embassy in Kyiv is removing almost all diplomatic personnel. Uh, I think it was around February 13th or 14th. And around this time, you and I were in Brussels, and you decided, I'm going to go to Kyiv. So can you tell us a little bit about how that trip came about, given the circumstances? Uh, sure. Well, and first, um, <clears throat> just that. Well, thank you for the the, the gracious uh, bio. Uh, but I just want to make make uh, make it clear that when I was in when we were in Brussels together, we were doing that fellowship. Um, that uh, I was not a part of the. Uh, I was not participating in uh, the military at the time, and I was not you know working for the U.S. government. So this was all this was all private stuff that I was doing on my own. Um, and you know we were doing that fellowship together. Uh, so uh, as you mentioned, I got a I got a degree from Oxford, so I. Uh, uh, when I was at Oxford, uh, one of my housemates was uh, Ukrainian. And uh, when I came back to Europe, uh, you know, when we were in Brussels together, uh, I was planning all these trips to, for the weekends to go see some of my friends that, uh, that I met at Oxford. There's a lot of international people there. Um, and so I had a few out in Eastern Europe that I was hoping to see. I had a friend in Poland, a friend in Latvia, and then my housemate who was from Kiev. Uh, so I, you know, I planned this little, I actually took time off from the fellowship. Uh, I think it took uh, about a week and uh, just did this like tour of Eastern Europe, uh, which happened to coincide with, 
you know, the, the, the amassing of troops along Ukraine's eastern border. Uh, so I, I visited Poland first and then off to Riga. And then uh, while I was in Riga, I was, I was planning on flying to, to Kiev to meet my friend. And that is when they, uh, the U.S. Embassy evacuated its staff. And I think you remember we were talking about this. Um, you know, it was definitely like a, a risk to go. And I always held the benchmark is like if there's diplomats there, then, you know, it's, it's, it's probably safe. Uh, so I so when they evacuated the embassy, um, I actually I paused my, my trip. I, I was supposed to get on a flight from Riga to Kiev and I didn't go. Uh, instead, I spent the evening with my friends in Riga. Um, and then spent the day with them the next day. And, uh, you know, we had, we had a beautiful day together. I went to the cinema and uh, walked around downtown, but I, I kind of, I, I felt bad that I, uh, that I kind of like abandoned my friend in, in, in Kiev. Um, so ultimately I, I reversed course and decided, you know what, I, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna go. Uh, I've been very critical of the Putin administration ever since the invasion of uh, Georgia and then 2014 Crimea. And I was always critical of world leaders, always being like, you know, um, uh, just kind of trying to appease Putin. And I said, you know, kind of like, screw it. I'm not going to put my money where my mouth is. I'm not going to let him dictate my, my personal plans. <laughs> um, my, uh, you know, my friend and I, we'd arranged this, you know, trip together to see each other so that mm -hmm. she could show me, you know, Kiev and she could show me her, uh, you know, her home. And she was very excited about it. Mm -hmm. She bought concert tickets and all this. And, uh, you know, I kind of just like backed out because I was scared of Putin. I thought that was, that was, uh, you know, I felt, I felt bad about that. So um, luckily, uh, Latvia was flying extra flights uh, back to Ukraine to uh, bring Latvian citizens back. Um, so I boarded a, mm. an empty flight uh, that was flying from Riga <laughs> to Kiev. There were, I think, there were uh, completely empty. There were, no, there were, there were three other people on it. They were all, uh, I, I noticed their passports as we were boarding. They're all Ukrainian citizens. Um, okay. So going back to Ukraine and uh, and then me. <laughs> um, yeah. And it was a little surreal. So, so then, uh, yeah, so I uh, landed in uh, Ukraine and uh, let my friend know, like, hey, I'm here. I'm, I'm going to enjoy the trip. Uh, so let's, let's go hang out. And so do you remember the day, the date that you actually landed in Kiev? Um, I, or I don't, it, I, I mean, it was, I, I was there for about four days, I think. So I'd have to, I'd have mm -hmm. to look at probably my photos and I, I took a picture. But it was, plane, it but... was like, it was like <laughs> yeah. about, I think, I think they invaded three days after you left, I think, or so it was about a week uh, yes, or eight three. or nine days. Yeah. So, so when you about, got to Kiev, three or four days, yeah. Yeah. When you got to Kiev, you know, you went to see your friend and, you know, on your telling, at least, it sounds like all the plans uh, for the trip, you know, were were basically unchanged, more or less, you know, except for all this tension uh, in the East and a lot of the uncertain, uh, a lot of uncertainty around what Russia was going to do. Um, what was Kiev like when when you got there? Um, did things seem completely normal? Was there any kind of feeling in the air of something going on? Uh, so. Yeah, the plans remained largely unchanged. The only thing is that I missed I missed the concert because I didn't take that original flight. So I, I do uh, right. I, I do I do regret that. But uh, yeah, um, when I was in Ukraine, um, it was the it was a regular major uh, European city. When I was in Kiev, um, there, there didn't seem to me uh, much of a difference. Uh, 
yeah, I've never been in a country that, you know, was about to be invaded by Russia. So I, it's, it's not really a litmus test for that, but, uh, but no one really seemed, uh, no one, no one outwardly showed fear or anxiety, mm-hmm. um, about what was going to happen. And remember, this is just, this is just me and my observation. Obviously there's plenty of people who were in Kyiv at the time. Um, but, uh, to me, uh, and especially hanging out with my friend, it, just felt like you know we're we're reconnecting. We're we were drinking beers mm-hmm. and t- telling stories, and uh, she was showing me downtown and tours the cathedrals. We went to a, a couple breweries. Uh, she took me to a, a rock concert. Um, went to see some museums. Went to go see the Capitol. Walked through parks, um, and it was uh, yeah. It just it just you know I traveled quite a bit in Europe, and it it nothing struck me as anything was different. Um, than any other major European city um, that, that you know I, I visited. Did you did you talk to people? I I know you know one of the real highlights that I appreciated on on your coming back when you were talking to me was you spent um, a lot of time in um, you know out in the bars and that kind of thing. Sometimes late into the night, and I often feel like that's that's where we kind of learn about what's really on people's minds and how they really feel about things going on. I'm just curious, did you have a, uh, any conversations that you recall with people in that setting or other settings, um, about what was going on? Yeah, there were, there were a few of those. Obviously, uh, you know, whenever I travel, I you know, try to learn as much as I can, um, through just like talking to people. And there was definitely, obviously that, that, that was the elephant in the room. Uh, was the you know 200,000 Russian troops that were amassing on the eastern border, uh, Western embassies pulling out, um, the United States essentially saying like it's going to happen any minute now. Uh, mm-hmm. So obviously that's a giant grill in the room, and you know uh, I, when I would bring it up with people or, or ask them, kind of like kind of like the same question you're asking me. Mm-hmm. Um, the the general resignation was uh, well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, like. I don't, what do you want us to do? You know, this is, this is my home. This is a major European city. It's a ma- major European country. Um, mm-hmm. Are we just supposed to just live in fear? Are we just, uh, you know, are we supposed to mass evacuate? Uh, mm-hmm. And there was, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of, I, I, it helped me understand a little bit. Like, yeah, I mean, how would you feel if, you know, name, name an American city uh, that's under a looming threat or name any city in the world where you're living in, uh, you just you're just supposed to pack up and leave or something because there's a, mm-hmm. a threat of an invasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was that general anxiety, um, but you know it's like what do what are we going to do? We can leave, we can either live in fear or we can uh, go about our lives and live our lives as a you know a free liberal society. And uh, for the most part, that's that's exactly what I saw: people choosing to live their lives and not to let anxiety or fear you know dictate. Um, you know, what they were going to do, you know, until ultimately the, the invasion happened and, um, you know, Mm -hmm. they had, you know, then, then they have to face that reality. Did, did you get any sense then, or even like looking back in retrospect that those in Kyiv, right? Because, you know, now we know that Russia tried to seize Kyiv quickly, uh, and to decapitate the government, but leading up to that, a lot of the conversation around the Russian force was uh, this is largely a bluff. 
or, you know, obviously we didn't know, but a lot of commentators and analysis suggested this could just be a bluff to extract concessions from the West. Um, maybe they'll launch uh, in a further incursion in the East. Many people were surprised that they actually tried to go straight for Kiev, um, that they didn't think that Putin would be that bold, but they did. Did, did you get the sense that people in Kiev, or, or maybe you couldn't tell, but did you get any sense that people thought that at the end of the day, Russia really might try something like that, or that they were fearful that just, you know, a week later, they might be worried if Russian troops would be occupying the city. Yeah, so you actually ask a, a very good question. I think that help, helps clarify the previous question. Uh, so because the, Kiev, Kiev is uh, very far. And sorry, sorry to interrupt. I just, yes. Right, just yes. another point, right? So they obviously Russia had troops stationed in Bel- Bel- Belarus, and that's kind of where they launched that from. But Kiev is very far from um, the eastern Russian border. Yeah, so the some of the some of the people I spoke with, um, you know, when expressing that like the general anxiety and the elephants in the room, uh, there were a lot of a lot of people. I think thought that it would be similar to what happened in twenty fourteen, um, and mm-hmm. that combat would be largely localized to the Donbass region, and uh, they'd be fighting over that, and they probably wouldn't try to go, you know. You know, west of the Dnieper River or, you know, Kiev or any of that. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I definitely think that was a shock to everyone uh, on the morning of the invasion when rockets started hitting Kiev. Right. Right. Um, and I guess, you know, so I think that didn't just shock people in Kiev, obviously. I think the whole world was shocked at the presence sure, yeah. of that. Um, and then a turn of events, which is... You know, obviously, the Russian invading force maybe didn't plan appropriately. Uh, you know, we saw pictures of convoys stuck on the roads, running out of gas. But the other side of that also is that um, in the Battle of Kiev, you know, Ukrainian forces, uh, I may add, you know, with the help of the um, anti-tank missiles from from yours truly, the United States of America and, and Britain and other allies, uh, but did repel this... Uh, this this advance were you surprised having been in ukraine having talked to the people that they even in that moment but in moments since have kind of showed the societal resilience that they have because obviously you know one of the things from a tactical point of view in war is that you want to break a society which is kind of the kind of nasty gross side of, of war but you know one of the objectives is you you want to split the society or at some point you want to you, you you have some dimension that involves how people not directly engage in combat react i mean so anyways yeah that that was a little little run on there for me but were you are have you been surprised that ukraine was able to withstand the way it has been from a societal resilience part, not at all. Um, okay. Uh, there's, uh, I mean, there's the what what I saw uh, in Kiev in those in those days leading up to the invasion uh, were people who refused to live in fear, and I think there was a, there's a great sense of solidarity that that uh, everyone got from that. And I think Zelensky mm-hmm. really uh, personified that, uh, especially in the opening salvos when he refused to leave Kiev. Uh, and, and he stayed there for quite a long time before he ever left the country to, you know, 
do his mission as head of state to procure you know, funds and uh, weapons for, for, for the army. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, it's always easy to play Monday morning quarterback or, you know, right. see things in retrospect. I think many people were afraid at the, at the beginning of the invasion that the Ukrainians didn't, they might not have the, the uh, physical capabilities, the weapons, um, right. to the numbers of, of soldiers to repel uh, the, the assault. But I don't think there was, uh, I don't know if there was ever a question of the, like the will, or maybe there was, um, but uh, from what I saw, I think that was like the, one of the, the truest strengths of the, of Ukraine is there, there's high national solidarity and resilience mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. down to the, not only just the members of the regular armed forces, but the, the territorial defense forces and the ordinary civilians who refused to leave. Uh, whether they were there to get medical aid, donate blood, or just you know help clean up uh, from the strikes, a huge, right. huge solidarity, and I think that's played quite, quite an important role in, in their continued resistance uh, and the, the successes they've gained in this latest counteroffensive. It, it, what's interesting to me, you know, I, with with all the discussion of um, NATO and NATO enlargement. Um, and people that claim that's a precipitating factor for this conflict. And you and I both know, and people that pay attention to this stuff know that there's a long, a long standing feud between the, the kind of causes and source of this conflict. But one thing that I feel like does get left out a lot and is very, very apparent, um, not just in, in this instance with Ukraine, but going back to Euromaidan protests going back to the i think it was the orange revolution there's all the colors i think crimson was georgia perhaps but that has been obvious across the former soviet union is that these countries who had brief periods of inter, uh, of independence at times in the 20th century all of them whether it's um the baltics whether it's poland whether it's ukraine all of them remember and despise uh whether it was Soviet or Soviet domination or before that Russian imperialism. And the, to me, the idea that these countries, given how just strongly anti uh, against this sort of having a gigantic neighbor in their backyard dominating them or would that they would just not resist in a strong way to me is, is, is just surprising. I can, you know, it seems that Vladimir Putin thought, thought they were going to be welcomed as, uh, liberators. Yeah, mate. I don't, that might that would be a gross miscalculation, I think, on his part. But uh, uh, to your point, though, I think so. Like in 2008, when Ru uh, Russia invaded Georgia, uh, I think you also had the same same societal resiliency and solidarity. Uh, and the Georgian armed forces, um, on a tactical level, uh, outperformed the Russian armed forces. And in fact, right. the uh, Putin. Kind of reformed the military after that from like lessons learned uh, they sustained much right. higher cat the russians sustained much higher casualties uh but it was, it was a simple right. matter of arithmetic um you know which russia always does it doesn't need strategy it needs bodies um and that's right. you know they're employing the same same kind of thing in ukraine right now ukraine is just a much much larger much larger country and uh i think a, a critical aspect that was different between ukraine and georgia was uh, Zelensky was very cautious not to uh, not to give the Russian uh, you know the Russian narrative any kind of 
right. ammunition uh, as, the, as that Ukraine would be the one to start the war. If you remember Saakashvili, right. he fired opening yeah. salvos to try and restore constitutional order. And, right. and, and, you know, it just happened to be that, you know, Russia capitalized that. And it was right after the Olympics. It was a lame duck president. Uh, you know, we were having a turnover. Uh, so, like, the world just, you know, they condemned it. But, you know, then, like, oh, it's Russia doing a peacekeeping operation, you know, in Central you know, <laughs> Asia or Eurasia. You know, it's not our business. Uh, but instead, uh, so Ukraine, I think, might have taken some lessons learned from that to know that, like, in order to win this war, they need the international community. And they have to engage mm-hmm. as much as they can to get that support. And I think they've done a very good job at that. Russia faced basically no consequences for that. Uh, maybe there was a sanction yeah, here, or there, yeah, but by yeah. and large, yeah. Which um, I mean, twenty percent of Georgia is still occupied by by Russian forces, and they're only fortifying it and sending more troops in there. Uh, and and what's right. even worse is as soon as President Obama, uh, you know, came to office, the first thing that he had Secretary of State Hillary Clinton do was you know reset relations with Russia, uh, and it just seems right. like a very interesting move, uh, uh, you know, salvo to make when they just completely nullified you know, the UN charter uh, and invaded a, uh, you know, a neighboring country. I, I guess, you know, there's the argument the United States did this thing, you know, a similar thing in, in Iraq, um, but, you know, two wrongs doesn't make a right. And I don't know if appeasing Putin at that time was the, uh, you know, the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. I, um, I've always been curious because, you know, we were practically kids when when that operation first happened in in high school, I wasn't paying a huge amount of attention to world affairs. That was two thousand eight, right? When that I think, yes, the August yeah. two thousand eight. And but we, when you read about it, it's always surprising to me that Saakashvili decided to order force because it would seem to me, at least, you know, knowing how Russia operated and its so called what they call I don't know if this is um uh passe or not it's near abroad is what the, the you know the russians call it they're what they claim is their sphere of influence uh that they would almost certainly respond with military force to that um as almost like a an excuse as you mentioned i just was surprised that i've never really felt like i've gotten a good explanation as to why Sakashvili thought that considering the consequences that would be a good idea i don't know if you have well, any insight I, I, on that yeah, I mean, I, I did a significant case study on the war, and um, you know, Saakashvili was in a very difficult position because you had, uh, just like you have like these separatists, you know, quote unquote separatists in East Ukraine, you had these, you know, separatists in South Ossetia and Abkhazia, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, the war started alleged, in South alleged Ossetia. separatists. Yeah, yeah. yeah. or yeah, were they yeah. alleged? Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. So well, so there's there's a difference. Abkhazia does have a. His, you know, Abkhazia has its own language uh, and a historic, you know, d- independence. Although during the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. it was part of the Socialist Republic of Georgia, uh, but they do have, you know, th- there's there's a, there's an Abkhaz identity. There's also an Ossetian identity. Uh, however, there's uh, you know there's also uh, you know an Ossetian language, but there's uh, you know there's North Ossetia and South Ossetia. North Ossetia happens to be in the Russian Federation. South Ossetia happens to be in Georgia. It's very interesting that yeah. Putin was was very concerned about the independence of South Ossetia, but not so much the independence of North Ossetia. Um, North, North so Ossetia he, is still part of Russia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's yep. Chechnya uh, and, and Dagestan. <laughs> yep. Um, yep. So, so uh, yeah, 
it was the same, it was the same ploy that he kind of used in Ukraine. Um, and th th they were being violent separatists. Uh, they, they were, you know, they were uprising. So uh, what do you do if you're the, if you're the head of state uh, of a country and, and there's an armed rebellion within your state? Um, so it's, a, it's a, you know, it's a difficult question. It's also a difficult question because you didn't have the same, Putin didn't have to show his hand like he did with Ukraine. Uh, he had been amassing forces on the, on the border um, in the lower Caucasus, but there's also, uh, there's a military district there that, you know, they kind of built up for Chechnya. And uh, it, was, it was much easier to funnel forces in there discreetly uh, as opposed to moving, you know, 200,000 troops across six time zones uh, from Siberia all the way to uh, the border with Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to turn back to, to, to Kiev again, and then, I mean, just briefly. At the yeah, end, sorry, we're kind of getting sidetracked. Oh, no, that's okay, because this is all very interesting. And actually, it's all very related, because again, you know, and I often tell people this, is to, to really understand Ukraine and to understand Russian foreign policy. You can't just look at what's happening in Ukraine or what has happened in Ukraine for two years. You really have to look at how Russia has interacted with and engaged with its neighbors since Putin came to power, um, you know, almost 20, almost 25 years ago now, which is just crazy to think about. And no one, no one should be uh, in power for that long is, 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 is my general view and that you're always going to have problems in the long run. But, but anyways, yeah, that's um, a great, that, real quickly, that's a great yeah. point because a lot of, yeah, yeah. a lot of the tactics that they, that they used in, that Russia used in Ukraine, they, they, they kind of first tried out in Georgia. Like yeah. there was this mass passportization program in Georgia where they just started yep. issuing out blank Russian passports to, and that created this false diaspora of Russians that gave right. Russia the impetus to to come into this civil unrest and restore order. Um, so right. and they, they tried doing the same thing in in, in East Ukraine. Um, yep. But yeah, so it's if, if you want to if you understand anything that they're doing in Ukraine, just all you have to do is look at the, what they did in Georgia. They're using the same exact playbook. Well, and I not I used to not fully understand um, the the fear in the Baltics about the Russian minority populations because part of me thought, well, you know. Sure, there might, you know, there's some Russians there, ethnic Russians, but why would Russia, you know, want to launch a war? Because, but then I realized that basically what a lot of Russian security policy uh, in their region amounted to was trying to find excuses to get involved and undermine uh, West and, and countries who had quite clearly spoken that we don't want to be a part of. Um, uh, of uh, the Russian sphere of influence. We don't want to be a part of something called the Eurasian Economic Union. We want to be in NATO. We want to be in the EU. We want democracy, um, right? So, yeah, no, and, and I had not fully understood that. And then you realize, like, no, this is just part of a pattern, and this is part of their long-term strategy. And it really is, and, and you know, I'm, I'll, get a, I'll do a little moralizing here. It's kind of a sad strategy. It, it is because... If, if a people can't decide for themselves where they want to be and you're going to consistently undermine the will of those people here and there and just about everywhere, what what is the whole point? That I mean, that's that's a little bit of liberal moralizing, but I do feel that way. And if Russia if Russia had just decided, I mean, if Ru you can't go back and rewrite history. So, sorry. If Russia had just and this is another thing I don't think people often fully understand is like the Russian regime itself here here's here's a hypothetical that i think is good for people to think about if russia was a democracy do you do do we think that they would have invaded ukraine and anyone who 
knows just about I, I mean you don't even have to investigate the question seriously to to know that that probably wouldn't have happened yeah yeah i would agree with you they, they had an actual opposition um didn't jail political opponents um but yeah no, I, I agree with you completely so but okay so, yeah sorry so that was that was my little tangent there but um in kiev let's go back to kiev a, a, a little bit um coming coming back from kiev again with with the potential war on on everyone's mind you're you're back in brussels and i was just surprised because i thought that people would have been scared and i'm sure people were scared you know obviously but what you described to me was that everyone was kind of staunchly against what was happening felt like they weren't going to cave into what was going on in russia they weren't going to leave the country um but then then russia does launch its invasion um, at that time, were you still in touch with your friend in Kiev, um, and maybe others? Uh, and and what what was that like for for you and for them? If you can comment on that at all. Yeah, uh, I mean, it was it was uh, it was pretty surreal. Um, just to think that uh, you know I, I shared some of those photos with you. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't just a few days ago that I was, you know, singing karaoke um, and having delicious Ukrainian craft beer uh, with, with my friends in, in Kiev. And, and now they are, you know, they're texting me saying how, you know, we're moving from shelter to shelter, um, trying to make our way to the train station, get to the train station, the trains, the train stations are packed. They, they can't get on the trains. It, it's, it's, it's chaos. Um, and I just remember uh, texting her throughout the day, uh, just checking in, seeing what she's doing and, there's any way I could help. Um, and, uh, I, I was shocked at the the level of that they, uh, that they were getting hit so much or that they, at least the, the sirens are going off so frequently that, uh, they had, they, they stayed in shelters for hours at a time and they, they were leapfrogging from shelter to shelter. Um, and then, so I, uh, I offered to, to come out to, uh, to Poland and to, to, to pick her up. Cause my, my friend, her, her family is in Crimea uh, and her brother was also in Kiev, but uh, her brother was staying and she was leaving. And uh, so uh, long story short, um, I, you know, with the fellowship that we were at, I told them like, Hey, I need to, <laughs> I need to go take care of something. Um, I took some time off. I took a couple days and went out to uh, uh, Jeshoff in Poland and uh, told my friend to, you know, if you can get to the border, get to the border. And then, you, know, you can come stay with me um, in uh, in Belgium until you you know get get your feet under you. Uh, well, that's it. Jeshov is uh, there's two major uh, there's two major crossing points uh, from Poland into Ukraine, and they were absolutely uh, just just packed with people. People were waiting 30 hours in line uh, with their cars trying trying to get across. Um, oh my gosh! So it was it was pretty it was pretty pretty hectic situation. So uh, I I told them I I went to the border myself to check it out and uh, yeah everything I heard and everything I saw was that this is this is an untenable crossing at this point. Uh, so mm-hmm. I told them to start uh, you know <laughs> we need Plan B. They hadn't gotten on a train yet anyway, so it didn't uh, it didn't really matter. Um, but uh, eventually we we agreed on uh, a border crossing in Hungary. Uh, so I mm-hmm. I got in my car and drove from. Uh, Poland through Slovakia into Hungary uh, and found this small town near the border crossing and uh, they, they still had to wait significant I can't I, I can't remember how long it was but uh, it, it was several hours 
but they had to wait and they finally crossed uh, in the early morning, early hours of the morning. Um, and uh, <laughs> I met them at, at the, uh, they're, they, they were able to drive across. Uh, that's right, they took a car because the trains they couldn't figure it out. Sorry, I'm kind of remembering this all now as I'm saying it out loud. Um, but so they, yeah, they drove to the border, they drove through and they, uh, she was with a friend and, and uh, her friend's father were driving them. And then uh, we met at the hotel, stayed at the hotel overnight. And then uh, she got in my car and we drove back to Cheshire and took a plane to Brussels. Um, and then she uh, she ended up going on to London from there because she uh, she had worked there. But um, yeah, the whole the whole thing was was pretty surreal. You know, I never I never thought that we'd have to um, <laughs> have to help a friend escape a Russian invasion. Um, but was, uh, was that was that emotional? You know what what was that like when you actually linked up at the border? Because I know this was days and days in the making and presumably you know the amount the stress and the tension and getting out and i think correct me if i'm wrong i think your friend took one of the last trains out is that right or no sorry she sorry she drove but was yeah. at some point okay yeah okay sorry yeah drove my, my bad but, I, um, yeah that's there we probably we should probably get her on the show to to recount her, her experience but uh because at, at right. some point uh I think they might have taken a train and met up with her friends. It was very like confusing is yeah. the point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. And so, so was that, that must've been pretty emotional, you know, for maybe for you, but also for your friend to actually know that they were getting to safety and out of the country at the time where, and again, at that point, they still thought the city might fall. Kiev. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it was definitely like, intense uh couple of days and um it's it was a weird uh it was a weird thing um you know what do you uh what, what do you what do you say to someone um i, I thought the same way when uh when i texted her in the morning you know what, what do you what do you say to someone who wakes up to a, a full-scale conventional invasion of their country um right and so uh i, I you know i didn't I, I was okay, you know, but I, I didn't know how to, uh, I really didn't know how to, how to uh, approach it. I, I didn't know what to say. Um, honestly, it was just, uh, cause, cause all the things that must be, must be going on think about people back home, think about like, like your, your apartment, right. <laughs> just think about leaving your apartment right. with all, with all of your belongings, uh, with, you know, all the little, uh, you know, uh, what's what's the word? Uh, what's meaningful to you? Um, uh, all those little tokens and trinkets that you collected from sentimental. You know, all all, all the stuff right. that you have that's sentimental to you. All the, all the memories you have, and you just like leave that, not knowing that's gonna, uh, you know, it's gonna be there when you come back. Uh, it's just it's just a lot, and it really kind of put conflict into a much more uh, personable and relatable, um, you know, context for me. Which you know, I mean, it, it's. It, it sucks that, you know, it takes things like this for us to kind of truly try to relate to people who are going through conflict and like, you know, everyone who's suffering right now in, in Gaza and in Israel uh, right. is, is one example. Is like we can't even, everyone comments on it on, on social media and things like that, but it's it, it's very difficult for anyone to truly internalize the suffering that people are going through um, until you actually like see it up front. Um, so yeah, I didn't really know what to say. <laughs> Uh, we went to uh, right. we we stopped for lunch in Slovakia and uh, 
you know, I ordered a beer. <laughs> uh, and uh, you're, you're like, you, you need, you needed, you needed it probably. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was nice to it's nice to have a beer. <laughs> um, yeah. But like, she didn't. But 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 uh, she like she didn't. She's like, I don't want to have a beer. I don't want to like. I think there's like a sense of guilt or something. Um, right. Right. And uh, so I don't know how to describe it, and I don't want to. I don't want to try to put, you know, words right. to how she felt or anything like that. Right. But how I felt was I, I felt that an utter loss of words. Um, you know, it's easier to talk to someone who's like lost a loved one because I think we've all kind of gone through that. This was something very different and it was ongoing. Uh, so I, right. uh, for me, I didn't, I didn't really know, uh, I didn't know what to say. Um, so all I, instead, so I didn't say anything. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't try to pry, I didn't yeah. try to ask questions. Um, I tried to keep it light, so I got a, so I got a beer, <laughs> um, <laughs> and then just said, and then I was like, you could just, you know, I just try to make her as comfortable as possible. I said you can stay with me um, for as long as you need and. Uh, and you know, that's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a strange situation for sure. Right. Well, your, your friend was lucky. I think that, that you were there that, that much I know, and that you were willing to go. It's, it's, it's far, it's far away from Brussels, you know, I know it's all Europe, but it's a far trip. So your friend is lucky. Um, last question, uh, I kind of want to give you an opportunity to, um, you know, what, what, or what, what would you, for, for people out there, the, the war has been going on for 20 months now. There's a lot of um, dispute over how long the United States can support this war. Uh, it's clearly, you know, it's developed into a war of attrition. You, you, as you mentioned at one point, Ukraine has made um, meaningful but very grinding and slow gains in this kind of long counteroffensive it's undertaken. What what would you say to people about that you would just want want them to know one thing about the Ukrainian people that you kind of gathered from all of your experiences, whether it was in Kiev, whether it was getting your friend at the border, whether it was the humanitarian work you did in Poland um, in the months after the invasion, and, and just for context, Kevin went back to do humanitarian work uh, in Poland um, not too long after this last episode we were discussing but what what is the one thing that you would want people to know i mean for you know i've 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 a few very close uh ukrainian friends and a couple ancillary friends um and so yeah obviously i've i only have my anecdotal observations uh but uh they're they're not going to give up and as long as they don't give up, we cannot give up on them. Uh, pe people think that this is a far off conflict that it doesn't uh, affect the United States, but uh, it does. Because uh, this isn't just uh, Russia versus Ukraine. In a former Soviet Republic, I mean, Ukraine is reaching for the West uh, and the West has to embrace it. We saw what happened in Georgia, saw what happened in Crimea and uh, the, the war of the liberal world order is being fought in East Ukraine right now. It's being fought with Western weapons, but it's Ukrainians who are dying. Uh, so my message would be that uh, while they're doing the dying, we have to support them. We have to give them what they need. Uh, this is not just the battle of Russia versus Ukraine. This is, this is liberalism versus totalitarianism. Um, and from what I've, from what I know from my Ukrainian friends is, they will not give up. Um, so 
as long as they don't, I'm not going to give up on them. And uh, just like I flew to uh, Ukraine, even though they evacuated the embassy staff, uh, I will not <laughs> let Putin dictate my life. And we shouldn't let him dictate our geopolitics either. Kevin Ryan, thank you for being with the world up front. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to the world up front. If you liked this episode, go ahead and give us a follow or like. We're on all the major social media platforms. And feel free to share this episode and others with friends, family, and anyone who might be interested.